Do squids still use ink or did they upgrade to touch screens? How much life have I wasted looking at cat memes? Listeners, pay close attention to this sound. It's a very special acoustic. Because this is the last time we're recording this podcast in Martin's and my flat. It's a very special moment, this, saying farewell to the home studio that has served us so well for, well, adequately, for for 10 years now. It's a sad moment. Because, uh, you may recall, Helen and Martin are being kicked out by their landlord (laughs) because he's moving back from the USA and this is his flat, so you can't live here anymore. (laughs) What's weird is he's going to move into this flat at which we birthed the show and recorded almost all of the episodes of the show we've ever done. And basically birthed podcasting in Britain. <laughs> exactly. And he'll be completely oblivious. Wouldn't even care. Almost certainly to the significance of this place as the home of South East London podcasting. And therefore the world's podcasting. She says modestly. He'll just walk in and go, where are all the smoke stains I've built up over 15 years of extremely heavy smoking? Why aren't the walls grey anymore? Why doesn't everything stink? You have done a bit of work here. He might also say, why are there so many hooks for guitars? That's something that he probably didn't think was essential when he left. He had, uh, on the same wall that the guitar hooks are on, he had a lot of picture hooks with an extension lead decoratively wound around them. (laughs) It was really tragic. Anyway, if only he knew. If only he knew the significance that you've achieved here. Instead of moving in himself, he'd hire it out to art historians. There should be a plaque on this building. There There should. One day there will. I don't know, it's a listed building, so it might be difficult. I think they'll make an exception for you. Better. I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss it. I've I've had some nights here where I've laughed like never before, and, uh, I've <laughs> and also... nights here where you've slept like never before. Yeah, we are usually on a blow up mattress, so that is different to other beds. Yeah, Although but a good Costco it, blow up mattress. It's, it's it's the best blow up mattress I've ever slept on. But yep. that's damning with faint praise, I would say. A lot of people don't even know that it's a blow up mattress. It's a good one. I'm not yep. slagging it off. Costco. Uh, here's our first question of the show. It's from Tracy in Hockley in Essex, who says. I've just driven to the supermarket and I had to wait quite a while to overtake a group of cyclists. Within the group, there were two people on a tandem. Why, why, why and how can this be better than just having two bikes? I love my husband dearly, but if every time I went out on my bike I had to look at his ass the whole way, it would get very old very quick. I thought cyclists' asses kept quite tight for longer. So, Helen, answer me this. Why are tandems still popular? I don't know if they're popular i think i maybe see a tandem once every three-ish years yeah i mean you live in an increasing oh sorry lived past tense Ah. in an increasingly gentrified corner of london and i hadn't noticed them getting particularly popular around here also we have a lot of uh, cycle races that start in crystal palace and cycle cafes where people are outside stretching their calves and eating protein powder and you don't see tandems generally do you but i suppose racing cyclists tend not to go on a tandem (laughs) Uh, but they are thought to be more energy efficient than two people on two separate bikes you presumably got roughly the same aerodynamic drag haven't you as you would have with one person because the profile is roughly the same i don't know i don't know exactly well and it's more stable as well it is more stable it's often kids isn't it i'm not always but often it's a parent and a child and of course the child can't pedal as fast so they get you you know then that they're safe they're with you and and you're more stable than if if the child had their own bike down a hill well that is also the thing although you do need to be in sync with your tandem rider you don't have to have the same strength. So it is a good one for having a cycle ride with your child where you're not waiting for them endlessly to catch up or similarly with your ancient parent. Uh, but also if you're cycling with someone who maybe has a disability that stops them from cycling solo, maybe they have vision impairments, yeah. they can still cycle. It's a bit like in that way, kind of like being the kid sitting on daddy's lap driving the car, isn't it? And pretending to hunt the horn. No, but you, are, you do actually have to do something on the back of a bike. Do you have to though? Don't yeah. your feet just have to go round propelled by the other person if you wanted? 
No, you're propelling the pedals in the behind one. You're okay. just not steering. But on the, if you're on the front one, then you're... you have to steer. So both yeah. of them, you have to you have to do something. Yeah. You can't just take it easy. No. Okay. So don't let Ollie Man on your tandem because he's just dead weight. Hello, this is Sean from Sterling. Um, in a takeaway, I just got a can that says not to be sold separately because it's a monkey pack. Why can't you sell them separately? They can legally be sold separately, Sean. Um, the, the takeaway that's selling you the can, effectively, that came from a multi-pack, they are just disobeying the manufacturer's advice. And if they don't have a direct contract with the manufacturer, then they're not breaking any law at all because there is no contract to break. But the can says! <laughs> so the reason the can says it is, imagine, Sean, if you weren't in your local takeaway but were instead in your local Sainsbury's, mm-hmm. imagine you saw, let's say, Diet Coke on a shelf and they were in a packet of 12, the price per can in a packet of 12 obviously is is less than if you go and get a single Diet Coke from a fridge in the same store, right? So Sainsbury's are able to sell the Diet Coke at, I don't know, 65p at the front of the store as a single can, but perhaps 30p at the back because you're buying 12 of them. The unit price is less because you're buying more. So when it says not to be sold separately, it's essentially flagging up. If you were to take that can from the multi-pack and try and buy it in the store there would be an embarrassing moment where it probably wouldn't scan and Sainsbury's should properly say, no, you can't buy that because, you know, we're not covering our costs by selling that to you individually. So that's why they do it. Um, any company that has a direct contract with a manufacturer can't sell those cans separately. But there's actually nothing in law to stop you buying something that's legal and then selling it on at whatever price you want. Well, this is very disillusioning. I thought those cans were truthful. Well, there it's is... just advisory. There is a possibility of your takeaway getting sued arguably, if they were selling... I don't think this happens with cans of drink, but with, like, cans of soup or something, mm-hmm. which would be an unlikely thing to get in your takeaway <laughs> as an additional That's side order. Shit, it really was. <laughs> but sometimes with things like that, the ingredients label with all the nutritional information for people with allergies and stuff and people who are worried about whether it's kosher or whatever, Ooh. that often will only be in the wraparound label, not the individual can. So there is the issue that they're flagging up that this may not contain all the information you need. So, yeah. you, so you could say, well, my newsagent gave me this. It didn't say it contained nuts because it doesn't say that on the individual thing. Yeah. So th- there's that as well. And also with some products like crisps, the multi-pack crisps that are not to be sold separately mm. uh, might be smaller than the soloist packets of crisps. Aren't they just? Here's another question of drinks from Danny who says, I'm having a post-pub kebab, but I have no more beer at home. Tragic. Ollie answer me this. What should I drink? I can find an M&S red wine box, some vintage claret, a 50th birthday present, and some Cointreau. Okay. What should I drink? Definitely not a cocktail. I think you could have the Cointreau after your kebab. Well, You don't want to open with that. That's your uh, nightcap. Vintage claret, I would say... Not the time. No. Save for an opportunity you're going to remember it. Where where your palate has not been corroded by the night you've already had in the pub and the kebab. Yeah. Which, whilst kebabs are wonderful in so many ways... They tend to have a lot of ingredients that will corrupt your palate sensitivity. Correct. I mean, think back to all those programmes you've seen on telly where people are wine tasting. They never say, the way to drink this is to make sure... Half a raw onion. First, yeah. <laughs> a lot first, of jalapenos. First, make sure your taste buds are obliterated by chilli mayonnaise. They mm. never say that. And there's a reason for that. So, save the posh wine. So, then we're down to the M&S wine box. Now, I mm. think you're in a lucky situation here. Yeah. Because... Red wine, I think, is a good pre-sleep drink anyway, so long as you stick with it and don't mix it with other stuff. Yeah. And it's a pleasant and a slow alcoholic hit. And it works with the beer before wine, fine. Yes, exactly. Wine before beer, fear. So, yeah, I'd say the red wine box is a good option. It is also 
being Marks and Spencer's not going to be terrible wine. Like, their bottom mm. standard, even if it's the cheapest one, and it will be if it's in a box, but even if it's the cheapest one at M&S, that's going to be a lot better than the cheapest one at Asda. And also, you've just ate a kebab. Will you actually be aware of whatever you're drinking if you just have water? <laughs> will you even notice? Well, that's probably what you should have, yeah. Because it's very salty. Although, I, I find myself often drinking red wine, rum as well, dark rum, late at night. Okay. Um, a shot of dark rum with no mixer. Just on saying. Yeah. Do you need us to call someone? Are you a sailor? <laughs> I've got a question. Email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from Peter in Haywards Heath who says, I'm currently listening to an episode of The Archers. That's, that's an aid memoir for anyone who's too young to actually listen to the Archers but knows Radio 4 vaguely from hearing it in their parents' house. It's just that strong sense memory. Um, do you know, I, I was once a guest on um, Front Row and um, just before uh, the show starts, the producer said into Mark Lawson, the presenter's ear, he said, do you want to do a rehearsal of the opening menu? And Mark Lawson actually said in his own mic out loud five minutes before the real show starts, he said, OK, OK. That was the Archers. And now front row. Hello. Good evening. <laughs> he did the rehearsal because he had to sing the Archers to himself. Yeah, to get into character. That's amazing. Like, that's that how much of a cue it is, even for people that bloody work there. Imagine what it's like being in the Archers. Yeah, incredible. They'd probably all do that. Like Peter says, he is currently listening to an episode of the Archers. Uh, and it got me thinking, he says, about their scripts and recording processes. <laughs> was the plot not very absorbing? <laughs> yeah, it was probably something about others. Helen answered me this. How many episodes of The Archers do they record in a day? Four. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of episodes, isn't it? Yeah, but they only have eight recordings a month. So right. for a daily show, that works well. So it's like the daily quiz shows that they bang out like pointless. Yeah. Uh, and how far in advance of broadcast do they record them? One month. I got this information... From a friend of a friend who is in the Archers. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. The only time I've ever encountered the Archers is when waiting for Front Row to start. <laughs> and uh, I don't have anything against it, like you do with all radio drama. I don't have anything theoretical so against it. Um, I would <laughs> one day be ready for the Archers, but I feel like... You live in the country already. You can be ready for the Archers. I feel like it's going to be the same time in my life when I'm ready for classical music, which right. is when my libido dies. Okay. <laughs> so the only thing keeping your libido alive is not listening to the Archers. <laughs> yeah. Are you it's, worried? It's seven o'clock. It's Mark Forrest. Gives me a right old stiffy. There's no way I could possibly listen to the Archers. I've got a mental image of your flaccid penis gradually falling onto the radio doll and knocking it onto classic <laughs> FM now. And, and, and you're like, well, I guess it's time. It's da, time. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so I, I heard somewhere that the Archers originally, and maybe still does has like an informational component like it's meant to inform farmers about matters of countryside business is that right yeah that that is right it does have its origins wow. in proper Rethian principles yeah um the, the original producer of the archers godfrey basely his name was um had previously worked not on soaps but on agricultural programs That's and his amazing. concept was this is boring if we dress this up <laughs> so that there's a bit of drama in it you know once every six weeks someone dies or whatever then farmers would be more likely to listen to the stories and pick up the messages along the way i wonder if that worked it's amazing well the show's still running so something worked yeah but i wonder whether it has shifted from that original principle because i don't listen oh, i has. couldn't possibly say i think i mean i i can't remember the exact year but something like 1972 
they abandoned any right. commitment to educate in the show and it became a, a straight up drama right um but, but now- still it reflects farming issues like when foot and mouth happened yeah, um, yeah so yeah. although farmers wouldn't listen to that to get advice on what to do with their cattle like his idea was we've got rationing so this will tell farmers how to feed the nation now you're unlikely to learn lessons but you are still i think likely to think okay this is reflecting my real life i'm more likely to listen and feel like part of a community through this what if they think it's real <laughs> do you think this is what will happen to the beef and dairy network oh <laughs> i think a lot of people uh, who first listened to beef and dairy network podcast by friend of the show benjamin partridge who mm. way back in the first year of the show i think sent us a question asking if he should go to bremen on holiday and then made a package yeah. in bremen on holiday so um, answer me this uh, store.com if you'd like to hear it yeah and since then i've got to know him in real life he has a podcast now very funny called beef and dairy network but uh, i think a lot of people that i've seen on twitter were like oh it's fiction ah <laughs> what makes me laugh about the arches is when you look through the list of cameos celebrities who have appeared in it um as themselves yeah i mean like judy dench has done it as an actress and stuff but like if you look at who's actually appeared as themselves quite eclectic as you'd expect with a long-running soap like that so chris moyles has been in it propping up the bar i'm not surprised he's in the same building as the bbc exactly uh prince prince wasn't uh pet shop boys did do it just like they did in neighbors of course, yeah. Did they? yeah and there was an episode with griff reese jones apparently where that's not a surprise no no exactly i'm getting to my point the episode with griff reese jones again expected he went along to one of the fictional characters who was trying to sell off the pub or something, and he, he tried to uh, restore the building for his TV program, Restoration. That was the plot line. So, right. like, so like, you sort of understand those celebrity cameos. Then I found that in 2007, Lord Winston did a cameo hmm. as himself, as a fertility specialist, when a couple in the show who had fertility problems went to go and see the actual Lord Winston, and he advised them on whether or not they should have treatment. Wow, but hang on, that must have been really expensive. What, for them to record? (laughs) For those characters to go to the top fertility specialist. Presumably that's partly the drama of it, but doesn't it sort of cheapen the whole thing, bearing in mind they are fictional characters? It both cheapens the the actual process of going to see the top fertility expert and also the soap itself by having a real-life person rather than an actor playing them. I don't know that it cheapens it so much as really rips you out of the fact that it's made up. It just draws attention to the fact that the rest is made up. It's an awkward celebrity cameo as well because yeah. it's like, look what, look at the clever thing I do. I get to help couples have children sometimes. Sometimes the babies don't make it through. It's just a bit weird. Since he does have a service to sell, does that make that episode of The Archer's branded content? Exactly. Does it make it advertising? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Complicated... Now it's time for today's intermission, Hurrah. where we take a little snippet from an Answer Me This episode from the past. Yes, just a little amuse-bouche. Yes. Just something to tantalise your taste buds. It's by no means the whole thing. But you could go totally la grande bouffe by buying episodes <laughs> 1 to 200 from our website, answermethisstore.com. We've had this in from Vicky, age 15, in Oxted. Uh, she has just watched the film Lolita online. Uh, I was in floods of tears at the tragic and powerful end. Hold on. She's going to ruin the ending now. It's all right. We, we've passed the statute right. of limitations no. on spoilers. She's about to ruin one of the greatest pieces of literature of all time. Published in say. 1955. So, so I can not... just say, can yes. I? Yes. Fine. Uh, she says the ending of the film she saw was a caption on the screen that says they both die. What kind of a shitty ending is that? I think I've lost all my innocence forever. Well, you were watching Lolita online, which is A, stealing, B, a film about paedophilia, so innocence be gone. To be fair, you never really imagined that the ending would suddenly be a marriage and a sing-along, would you? I mean, I, I've not, I've not <laughs> read the book. We're all in this together. <laughs> I've not read the book, but I guessed it would probably be a bit tragic. 
It's time, listeners, to remind you that if you want to leave a question on our voicemail, then you can call in on the following number. Oh, did that sound different to usual, did it? Mm, that's because there's a little present from Tom from Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a jingle that he's made of our phone number, which, by the way, if you missed it, is 0208-123-5877. Uh, the numbers made up by bits of famous artists singing songs from their back catalogue. Did you spot all the songs there? Uh, we'll put I the didn't whole list. even spot the numbers. Well, <laughs> it's quite hard to make out the number. Uh, but we'll put the list of all the songs on our website. Um, but uh, Bill Withers was in there. Meatloaf was in there, which, you know, obviously is exciting to me. Yeah. Uh, and a song by Prince called Seven. I was not familiar with that Prince number. N- no. I'm trying to think if there's a more famous song with the word seven in it. The Seven Seconds by Yusu Endor and Nina Cherry. <laughs> yeah, that is a better one. I think what we're doing is uh, saying that you could have done this better, Tom. But don't do it again because we can't pay copyright. <laughs> music fees <laughs> it's very complicated the licensing in every country that this podcast is available in which is nearly all of them uh, anyway let's hear who has been in touch today hi helen ollie it's sean from berry here i've been all over america i've had american food from all the different states well nearly all of them but i've never had native american food so answer me this what is traditional native american cuisine and secondly why is it not popular in restaurants? Why has there been no Native American food franchise outlet? Is this a gold mine that we're sitting on? Gold mine we're sitting on. Yeah, let's take something that's theirs and exploit it for capitalist gain because <laughs> uh, that always goes so well when it comes to Native American culture. Mm. Uh, people really love that. It gets very positive press, doesn't it? I have my thoughts about why this hasn't caught on as a cuisine in the States. But first of all, I'm, do you know what Native American cuisine is? Because as, as Native peoples, quite widely geographically spread. Absolutely. And the local ingredients around which Native American food is based uh, vary wildly from Alaska to the southeastern US. Yeah. But I've travelled very extensively in the lower 48. Didn't really encounter that much Native American food. The only time I have really come across any was in Arizona and New Mexico. And what was it there? Uh, so there, the feature I particularly remember was fry bread, which is like yes. a massive bit of fried dough. And also corn and squashes, peppers and tomatoes in some places. Like in some places they'll have a lot of game, in others they'll have more fish, depending on the geography. Like in Alaska they have more seal meat mm. than they have in Arizona. But it's also the bits of the animal that they eat are different. There's a lot of yeah. brain going on in Native American cuisine, I yeah. understand. liver and stuff. And then berries... Um, so I think it does have the capacity to become very popular with people who are into the paleo diet and or similar and they want these these ancient unrefined ingredients because they don't really use farm meat traditionally, uh, they don't use processed flour and sugar. And I presume there's a lot of overlap in the south with Mexico because the, those people's kind of were permeated and migratory and traded and communicated and so on. Yeah, so I remember when we were served fry bread, it was very much in the style that you might be served a taco, so with mm. salsa and sour yeah, cream yeah. and beanie things dumped on it. Well, I think in that lies my answer as to why this isn't as popular in the US as pizza joints and Mexican and all the rest of it. I mean, there's lots of reasons. One of them is what you were hinting at, the different geographical areas. So people in one place would go in expecting salmon and another place expecting buffalo. So how do you have a consistent meal that you offer up as a cuisine? But I think the real issue actually is the cost. So if you imagine a taco and you get cheap pork to put in it if you've got a Mexican restaurant, if you're running a Native American restaurant... 
Imagine the controversy of an American company like McDonald's opening up branches of Native American cuisine that didn't employ Native Americans, right? That would be a no-go. They'd have to say, we use genuine ingredients farmed by Native Americans. That costs loads of money. If you're going to have a buffalo brought up and slaughtered by people who are not exactly uh, in tune with intensive farming, that's going to create its own issue. And the general pundit isn't prepared to spend four times as much for a buffalo taco as for a pork taco. And that's basically what it comes down to. I think that is some of what it might come down to, but far from the whole story. I think you've got a very complex issue. As soon as you get into there being large chains of Native American restaurants, which will be largely serving people who are not Native Americans, then you open up that very complicated and politically sensitive situation. Because Native Americans have been fucked over such a lot Mm. and discriminated against a lot and marginalised a lot uh, and culturally appropriated a lot. And this would probably happen again. Like if it was difficult for Native Americans to set up these large businesses because their income is way below average, so it's hard to set up a massive chain. The settlements they were given are not usually near the big cities where food trends start. And then if you're based around local ingredients, how are you going to get them in New York, say, where the trend would then spread to other places? And then what do you do to attract outsiders? Because a lot of people are not curious or brave about trying new foods. Do you then compromise your traditional foods to attract them? And then if they are restaurants not run by Native Americans, then you get the whole culturally insensitive, but, diluting their you culture. you could imagine thing. a group of um, people from Arizona or New Mexico setting up a chain in LA and it being very popular, right? Well, they have. There's one in New York at the moment. Well, this is one. it. They often say in their interviews, like, you know, we're going to open a chain of 12 restaurants by the end of the year and, and yeah. the biggest chain at the moment has two. Um, mm. So it just it hasn't proven itself as a business model. It's, it's partly because landlords don't want to take the risk either because they know there's an audience for burgers. They can't prove there's one for Native American food. But also Native Americans apparently don't have a restaurant culture, which I think would influence it as well. But I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few years it does take off. Would you eat bird brain soup, though, if I served it up to you now and told you it was delicious? Don't really like soup. Uh, Don't avoid the issue. Bird brain. Would you eat bird brain soup? I think it would depend on on the texture of the brains, often with organs. Well, would it? It's off the menu. Off the menu. Here you are. You're in my Native American restaurant. I say this is a great recipe handed down from my grandparents. You you know, it's got a Michelin star, this place. It's culturally right on. Everyone's Native American. Would you eat my bird brain soup or not? Was I ordering it or were you just shoving it in front of me? Uh, I'm the waiter and I've come up to you and I've chatted you up and I've been like, our specials of the day are this and this. No, never order the specials. The specials is always stuff they're trying to get rid of. Okay, I think she's avoiding the question. I think she's. I think she is, yeah. Would you eat? I wouldn't eat bird brain soup. I would. Yeah. Would you? If I was yeah. in someone's house, then I would. If I was ordering in a restaurant, okay, then I wouldn't. Fine. I wouldn't eat it in a different culture either. I just don't no, no. really uh, I, like offal. No, neither do I, but it's a big part of certain Native American cuisines, that's all I'm saying. I've definitely eaten stuff that I thought would be disgusting and found delicious. Like I remember eating Polish tripe soup that was mm. Mm, amazing. You've just got to sort of close your eyes and pretend you don't know what it is, haven't you? Hello. I'm Wilson, the ball from Castaway, and here is my song about my favourite balls. Football, rugby ball, volleyball ball, tennis ball, zoe ball, basketball, netball, handball, debutante ball, bowling ball, baseball, big sweaty ball. Answer Me This Sports Day, a marathon of fun and games, out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Here's a question from Adam from Yorkshire who says, Helen, answer me this. When you leave a fingerprint at a crime scene, what are you actually leaving behind? What is it on your finger that's coming off and staying on a surface until someone wipes it down? 
Is it oil? Yeah, it can be oil from your finger or sweat or dirt. Or if you had traces of, say, engine oil on your finger, you might leave that. If you just washed your hands with soap and water, you could still leave fingerprints, though, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah. So I, what's that? Well, I think that will still be oil. There's also the option where you leave fingerprints in something say powdery or squidgy so you leave an impression of your fingerprint rather than the actual substances of your finger Mm -hmm. but i think he's asking about the muck you leave the human muck the fact they still use fingerprints and that's what sherlock holmes was using is sort of extraordinary isn't it still works people have still got unique fingerprints i think um racist eugenicist statistician francis colton uh, figured out the likelihood of two people having the same fingerprints and i think it was like one in 70 billion wow which is why it's it's thought i think that there's been evidence to say that's not quite true but that's why it was thought to be such a good indicator of of guilt if you find someone's fingerprints. It's also quite hard to fake, isn't it? It's I mean, a lot of effort, yeah. You, I mean, how yeah. would you how would you plant someone's fingerprint in a place that they'd never been to? Obviously, uh, well, if they lived there, you could but, do it with sellotape now, yeah. pretty easily, couldn't you? Okay. A bit of dust and then or on a, off a wine glass, I guess. Yeah, we've all seen that bullshit in murder mysteries on telly, mm, right? Yeah, does but that do really people actually happen? do it? Mm. I, I, I mean, if you're pinning your whole deception on it, yeah, bit of sellotape on the back of a wine glass well you'd be better off doing dna evidence then yes exactly because, nowadays but mm. i think there's far more problems with dna evidence i think that gets compromised a lot more often than fingerprint evidence best thing obviously to wank someone off in their sleep and then plant that around the house but it's difficult to, uh... <laughs> burglar seems to have jizzed everywhere <laughs> that'd be an amazing miss marple uh, <laughs> uh rick says helen answer me this are there any health benefits to oil pulling <laughs> i've read that swishing coconut oil around in your mouth for up to 20 minutes and then spitting it out into the trash uh, otherwise it clogs your sink's drain pipes when it solidifies again good point Rick thanks for the mm. tip Rick uh, will remove toxins that form in your mouth oh you've always got to toxins. be so careful around things that claim to remove toxins firstly you should ask the practitioners what they mean by that yes by toxins by toxins it's because... like when people say they've got a great energy or they're very spiritual but toxins mm. are actually a thing like heavy metals those are toxic yeah whereas what they're talking about uh, they're usually more vague when you press them on it. And also, if you're a fairly healthy person in that you're, all of your organs are working and you're not absolutely barraging them with terrible substances, they will eliminate toxins from your body for you. That is what your liver and kidneys and digestive system are for. Glad to hear it. Your kidneys have put them into piss, basically, won't they? But uh, coconut oil is the current panacea of Paltrow choice. I think it's even overtaken cider vinegar. Yeah. And bicarbonate of soda. So why is that? Well, coconut oil has antibacterial properties. It is 50% lauric acid, which inhibits strep mutans that are the primary bacteria that cause tooth decay. So it may help prevent tooth decay. Also, there's some bacteria they will bond to fatty substances and thus it's easier to wash them out of your mouth with an oil. That's sensible. Um, Yes, but it's one of those things where it's probably not bad for you well it's probably not bad for you but the thing is if you get coconut oil into your lungs then it can cause lipoid pneumonia so actually it can be a bit bad for but that'd be true of any oil well exactly that you inhaled yeah and also it can give people stomach upsets but the thing mm. is like they're saying yes it could be good for like um strengthening your jaw and whitening your teeth and freshening your breath but not necessarily in the limited studies that have been done better than a mouthwash but i suppose you might want to avoid the chemicals that are in a mouthwash I've been buying coconut oil for six months now and I didn't know you were supposed to use it in your mouth. I've tried it a couple of times just to see what this is like. Have uh, you? Yeah. You didn't tell me that. Well, I don't you tell keep, you everything. Keeping the secrets. Well, how, really. how do you... What, because I've been using it for cooking. Yeah. Is that wrong? 
No, it's meant to be very good. Oh, you can use it for cooking. Oh, you can use it for every bloody thing now. But, I've, but it's okay to eat it. Yeah, but I used it also on a scar that was reluctant to heal. Wow. Really cleared it up. It really is the panacea of the moment. Yeah. Is it? Is it liquid cocoa? No, it's, no. It's, it's 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 a mushy uh, cream. How do you swill it? How do you swill it? Well, some people just put a lump in their mouth and and swill it until it liquefies. I put a little bit into a cup that was in some warm water so it melted into a liquid uh-huh. and then you just sort of sit sloshing it around your mouth and it turns white and everyone's like oh that means it's filling with toxins but it's filling with <laughs> saliva and air which means of course it's changing there have been a few studies done but they are by people who are affiliated with ayurvedic medicine which has been using oil pulling for like three to five thousand years therefore they're not necessarily the most impartial or the most accurate so you, you probably shouldn't start at 20 minutes a day. That will be too much. You can start with five minutes and work up if you really want to do this. And then you're supposed to rinse your mouth out with salt water. So if the coconut Ugh. oil didn't make you peak, <laughs> salt water will do it for you. I'm an answer me this fan. I listen with my nan. She is not so keen. She finds it too obscene. I follow them on Twitter. Though Ashton Kutcher's fitter. I want to take things further. Just one step short of murder. I want to look like Ali Man. I want to smell like Ali Man. I want to be like Ali Man. I want to chase like Ali Man. I want to look like Ali Man. I want to talk like Ali Here's a question from an anonymous lady who says, I'm in my 20s. My younger brother is at university, he's in his late teens, Mm -hmm. and during the holidays, he lives with our mum. This week, he revealed he's been reading her diary. What? And has relayed to me some increasingly juicy, scandalous, and now quite concerning elements of what seems to be her sexual reawakening since (laughs) getting divorced. Good God. You know, when I was a teenager, I did go digging around into my dad's porn collection because I knew it was there and it was my only chance to encounter anything like that. If I'd have stumbled onto anything homemade, I would have, mm-hmm. had, to, I would have had to have blinded myself. <laughs> I took that risk knowingly. Slam's an Oedipus, isn't um, it? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the idea of reading the innermost thoughts of my parents mm. that are meant to be private, you know, even if they're just words on a page, if they're sexually explicit, that is absolute poison, isn't it? And also, when you're younger... It's so inconceivable that they're actually human beings with urges and lives of their own. They're not just subsets of you. Yeah, and I just think it would be playing on your mind all the time. If if you're still the child in that relationship, and this this sounds like it's slightly easier for her in her 20s not living with her mum anymore to talk about. For her brother, you know, he's he's living with her. She's the mum figure still. I think this is quite disturbing stuff. Well, Anonymous Lady says, I've told him to stop reading the diary, but Ollie answered me this. What do I do with the knowledge I've acquired? Hire the men in black. It sounds like she is engaging in risky and unpleasant to her sexual antics with equally unpleasant men. (laughs) Just put your fingers in your ears and say la la la. Is that really so difficult? I think she wants her mother not to be having sexual encounters that are emotionally or physically damaging to her. Yeah, but then her mother can come to her and ask for advice, can't she? I think what she may be hinting at is a difference in generational attitudes towards sex. Possibly, but then possibly her mother's also interested in someone else of the same age as her and that person's from that generation as well. And why should a younger person assume that they know all what a good relationship is when the older person's been in one for longer? Well, I think Anonymous Lady can interpret whether it's risky um, and that could still mean her mum's having a good time. But if she's saying it's unpleasant to her mum, that that sounds like the mum must have been confided in the diary that didn't really make her very happy for whatever reason. Anonymous Lady says... 
I don't want to let my mum know that her children have been reading her diary, although she certainly invaded my privacy a great deal during my teens, but I'm very concerned about what she appears to have become involved in. She's not the most assertive of people, and she's also, I think, incredibly naive, thanks to a 30-plus year marriage. I don't think she knows what a good relationship or a good sex should be like. She's taking a very, like, paternalistic attitude towards her mum, isn't she? Like, is she worried that, like, she's in physical danger? Is she worried about, like, safe sex? Like, what are her concerns? Either way, I think she's being the mum in this relationship, isn't she? The other Freudian thing here, I I don't know the circumstances of your parents' divorce, obviously, but it sounds like... Um, some of your concern you've got to confront the fact that your mother is having sex with someone mm-hmm. uh, and that will sometimes you know be something she enjoys and sometimes not and actually sometimes those two things happen together and we're all programmed not to think about that we're all programmed to think of our parents as our parents from the moment we're born if we're brought up in conventional setups but also without knowing the specifics of whether it is destructive sexual and emotional behaviour that her mother's engaged with. It could just be that your mother's back on the market and when you're dating, you might have some encounters that you just think that person is a bit of a twat. Like it might not be a harmful thing to do. You might just be like, well, I'm out there doesn't mean everyone is someone I'm really pleased to be with. No, exactly. And actually the fact that she is confiding it to her diary... I haven't kept a diary since I was 12, but when I did, there was definitely an element in there of bragging to the future me, I mean, obviously hopelessly, but I didn't know that at the time, about what I'd done. And even when I was angry about stuff, even when I was unhappy with the way things were going, it was really a way of me recording a thing that on some level I thought was quite cool had happened to me. I mean, your mum might just essentially, by writing these detailed descriptions of unpleasant men she's having sex with, effectively be saying to her future self, I'm having sex! Yeah? I'm having sex! Or, if later when you're no longer seeing these people and you're feeling a bit nostalgic about it and thinking, oh my God, they were the one. Yeah. You can look back at this thing. He was just a bit of a tool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The signs were all there. I just didn't want to believe it. But anyway, I don't think really you should mention to your mum that you read her diary. But you could engage her in a conversation where you got a bit more earnest about her dating life. You yes. could say, how, how has it been going on the single scene? Have you met anyone nice? What's it like dating after 30 years of divorce? I think you can just come out and say that, can't yeah, you? use it as briefing notes. Yeah, and but, then... But don't let her know where you're getting it from. No, and then if your mother seems like there's something troubling her, you could gently steer her towards talking about that. And she doesn't necessarily have to reveal to you in person the particulars of her sex life. But if then you have concerns that she's... Uh, engaging in let's say unequal encounters Mm. Mm. uh, whether they are harmful or not then um, you can talk about them right also she's presumably hearing about it from her brother not reading the extracts herself not clear again yeah clear so maybe he's interpreting it slightly and he might have less of an understanding of the sexual urges of a woman who is several decades his senior exactly you could be hearing a teenage boy's interpretation of a middle-aged woman's sexual frustrations not ideal (laughs) but not the clearest picture Mm. but it sounds like a great idea for a podcast (laughs) (laughs) my mom wrote a diary straight to number one people sadly that particular one isn't available right now Uh, but our archive is a reminder on our website answermethisstore.com and there'll be new episodes of this show very soon with your questions which you can supply using the contact details on our website answermethispodcast.com and also if you need more ear matter then you can use our offer to get a free audiobook from audible by going to answermethispodcast.com slash audible that's right remember if you get a free audiobook it doesn't cost you anything that's the meaning of the word free but we get money from audible 
So thanks. Mm. Oh, uh, listeners, uh, I'm doing a live show of The Illusionist in September on the 24th at the London Podcast Festival. So come along to that at King's Place. Am I doing something for that? I reckon I'll get Martin on stage to do something. I can do a little dance. Oh, Martin, you're trying to live negotiate your role here. I'm appearing as the letter A. Are you Are you going anyway? But you haven't you haven't got anything. I'm just going to storm the stage with my guitar. Okay. So maybe I can see you in person then. But before that, please uh, join us again in two weeks for the next. Answer me this. Bye. Bye. Bye.